Okay, can you hear me okay if I use my teacher voice? Yeah. All right. So welcome to the Gall Museum. My name is Janae Redgrave. I work here as the Community Program Coordinator. It is wonderful to see such a great turnout, people interested in learning about writing on stone. So our program today, The Galt presents uh, my colleague, Rebecca Wild. So Becky is actually our museum educator here at the Galt Museum. Uh, prior to working at the Galt, she was staff at Writing on Stone for about seven years. So I'm really looking forward to today's talk. Let's give Becky a warm welcome. All right, I'm going to see if this microphone is working. There. How's that? Everybody can hear okay? I don't need to shout too much? Okay. Tell me if I am shouting too much, because I do tend to speak kind of loud. But I'm super pleased to be here today, and I'm really glad that all of you could be here as well. And um, I guess I should say Happy New Year, and okay to all of you. Um, this, I wanted to begin by acknowledging that we are on Treaty 7 land, and that there have been tribal feet um, walking across this land and being here for thousands of years. Um, but that's something that we're going to talk a lot more about today, because the site that I'm, I'm speaking on today is very significant to the Nitsitapi, the Blackfoot people, and we'll be talking a lot more about that. Um, all right, this is working. So the reason that I'm speaking here today is related to an exhibit that we're surrounded by. So um, we have this exhibit called Wonders of Southern Alberta, and it's a photographic uh, exhibit, and you can see some examples surrounding us, and um, the exhibit also involves uh, more photographs in the two uh, rooms next to us, the um, two boardrooms, as well as in the lower level uh, here of the, uh, in the archives area. And so all of the photographs are celebrating the unique and diverse um, amazing things that we have here in southern Alberta. And that includes writing on stone, or Asineki. Now, um, the reason that I was asked to speak, as Janae mentioned, I think it has a lot more to do with the proximity of our workstation. She's like, hey, I'm looking for speakers uh, for, our, for our new exhibit. And, um, and she knew that I had come from writing on stone, and so she asked if I could speak, but certainly there are plenty of people who could speak um, very effectively on this topic. And, and I did want to say that um, um, it was my very good fortune up until a few months ago to work at Writing on Stone, Ace and AP. And um, it is, I, <laughs> the, the exhibit is called Wonders of Southern Alberta. And certainly Writing on Stone um, is a wonderful place. And um, it's also Canada's newest UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so it is now recognized on an international level as being a place of remarkable, outstanding uh, value, and I'll talk a little more about that too. But I also wanted to acknowledge uh, the elders, the knowledge keepers, the teachers, the researchers who have gone before me and who have shared their understandings of this special place, and I hope that I can um, honor them and the things that I share here today. So, I took a screenshot from the UNESCO website, and um, I just wanted to read what, what uh, a summary of why this has achieved this designation. So, uh, from Criterion 3, the sacred landscape and the rock art of writing on stone Asinapi provide exceptional testimony to the living cultural traditions of the Blackfoot people. According to the Blackfoot beliefs, spiritual powers inhabit the earth, 
and the characteristics of the landscape and the rock art in the property reflect tangible, profound, and permanent links with this tradition. The viewsheds of the Sacred Valley with high grassland prairies also contribute to its sacred character and influence traditional cultural practices. So for these reasons, um, this place has been recognized as having outstanding universal value, and I certainly espouse that same belief. Uh, I do think that this is such a remarkable place. And uh, I don't know who wordcrafted that. Aaron, did you have something to do with that? With that statement? Anyway, I, I just love that summary. Um, and I think it kind of gets to the heart of why this place should be recognized as having uh, this universal value. Now, how many here have been to Writing on Stone? Okay, maybe I should say, have any of you here not been to Writing on Stone? So there are a couple, there are a couple. If you're not familiar with where Writing on Stone is located, so we're up here in Lethbridge, if you just hop on the Highway 4, go down to Milk River, head east, right down here, this little green section, that is the land base for what is a provincial park um, known as Writing on Stone Asinapi. And um, so that's where I was fortunate to spend some time over the last several years. Um, but I just wanted to back up a little bit to even when I was much younger. When I was a kid, we used to go down to Montana, uh, through Montana to visit relatives. And um, as we're driving down the interstate, you could see these hills off in the distance. And you could, you could watch them go by for like over an hour. And I was like, what are those hills? They're just so remarkable. And even in my young age, I, I felt inspired to do some sketching, and, uh, you know, I'm not particularly artistically inclined, but, but just seeing those hills in the distance really impressed me, and it's something that stayed with me. Um, not long after making that drive by the Sweetgrass Hills, um, I went on a school field trip there, and again, I was just so impressed with this re just remarkable landscape of the valley, and I, I don't recall at that time if, I, if we even saw the, the rock art, but... Um, Playing amongst the hoodoos and just being down in the river valley of this remarkable place really made an impression on me from a young age. Um, so I should point out that those hills are not actually in the park or even in Canada. They're just across the border into Montana. And, uh, but they are visible from miles in every direction and are a very prominent landscape feature. Um, so then subsequent years went by and I started to learn more about archaeology and anthropology. And, and I went to school in the States and, and visited a lot of archaeological sites, uh, ruins, and rock art sites, and um, began to learn more about the rock art that's in, in my own backyard. And so I uh, became very interested in this site, and it was, part of, it was influential in um, me making my home in Milk River for the last 20-plus years, uh, was, being, was being close to this place. And um, so I, I should point out that a lot of these pictures were taken uh, by myself and my husband, um, lots of days when the weather's nice and he gets, he's a teacher and he'll get off school and he's like, oh, I'm just going to go for a motorbike ride. Well, he usually ends up here uh, and taking pictures of the Sweetgrass Hills from the same location, but it just never gets old. Um, <laughs> I like this picture especially because of the cloud cover on top of the hills. And um, if, you're, if you do biblical studies, uh, they talk about theophanic elements or, or a sign that God is in the mountain. And... Um, and uh, I like to think of that. And just a few days ago, when my kids were home at Christmas, um, I looked out the window. I'm like, man, it looks like they're erupting. It looked like a plume of smoke coming out of the top of the hills. So I'm like, kids, you got to look at the hills. Because they just never get, they never get old. Um, 
But these have always been a special place for the Blackfoot people. And in their tradition, these hills are known as Pectoyas. And they're named after a famous hero in the Blackfoot tradition. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Pectoyas. Now, this is a story that I, I, uh, I told lots of Nopi stories when I worked at Red Island Stone, but I didn't talk about the story of Pectoyas, but it's a great story. So, there was a, there was a family, and um, a mother and father, and they had, had some daughters. And uh, a young man approached the, the, the family and was interested in, in marrying the, the oldest daughter. And so they, um, they, they wedded, and uh, he, he was a very, he seemed like he had a lot going for him. He was very strong, he was a good hunter, good provider, and, uh, you know, he seemed like a very good, very good uh, husband candidate. So they agreed to the way. And so, but he wanted to kind of make his own way, and so he thought, well, let's all move we're going to set up our own uh, pound uh, for catching bison, and um, we're going to go away from the main group. Well, as they kind of became a little more isolated, his behavior kind of started to change, and he became much more, um, some of his negative qualities started to come through, and he became abusive. He did not um, share what he's able to hunt or to catch with the with the rest of, with the parents. So he would share with his wife, and eventually he took a couple of the other daughters to wife as well. And um, but the youngest daughter, she, she would sometimes try and sneak food to her parents to help look after them. They, they lived in a separate teepee. And so, but they were just kind of on the brink of starvation. The, the, the man was just, treated them very poorly and was abusive uh, physically, emotionally. He, was, he turned out to be not such a great guy. And so they were in this predicament. And uh, one day, as the, um, uh, the young man, um, they were able to catch a bison in the pound and uh, killed it. And in the process, it, uh, it bled a little bit on the ground. Well, the old, old man, he, uh, he pretended to fall down and to spill his arrows out of his quiver. And he surreptitiously gathered uh, some of the blood that had clotted and, and fallen onto the ground, and he put it into the bottom of his quiver and then covered it up with his arrows to secretly uh, take this blood clot uh, so that they could get some nourishment. So he took it home to his wife and said, okay, let's start up a fire and uh, let's, let's cook this up to make a little blood soup. And um, so they, um, as, as she started to cook it, they heard a cry coming from the pot. And um, they look in, and it's a baby. There was a young boy in there. And they were astonished. Not only was this young boy just turning up there, but he could also speak. And he gave instructions that they were to lash him to the poles of the teepee and to move him around each day. And um, after he made the circle around the teepee, he was a full-grown man. And um, they called him the blood clot boy, or Pectoyas. Mm -hmm. And um, so he began to exact revenge against the mistreating um, son-in-law and uh, killed him and, and the daughters who were allied with him, but the youngest daughter he spared. Now he continued on to, to slay all kinds of evil forces. Um, the, the wind sucker and the two-faced woman, women, and um, some believe that uh, with the, the fossils of these old beings, that were found with these great big jawbones and teeth that, that um, maybe Kaktoyas had something to do with the extinction of the dinosaurs to make the world safe for the Blackfoot people and to eliminate some of the evil forces. And it's believed that his resting place is in those hills. 
And um, so they carry his name today. So that's the story of Pactoius. And uh, I think it's a great story. Um, let me just see here if I've missed anything. So on the map today, they're called the Sweetgrass Hills, which is a bit of a misnomer because there isn't sweetgrass that grows there. It tends to grow in more marshy areas. Um, but they were originally called the Sweet Pine Hills as well because there are subalpine fir trees that grow up there, and, and the sweet pine would have been gathered for ceremonial purposes. Um, I was talking with my colleague and elder Blanche Brewstead, and she remembers when she was a kid uh, going to the Sweetgrass Hills to gather juniper buds with her great-grandmother um, to be used for medicinal purposes. And so this is a picture taken from West Butte, and this is a picture is from taken by Meg, uh, so I just want to acknowledge her for the photo. Thank you. Um, so this shows, uh, I'm on West Butte, and it's kind of a grassy knoll, but it is forested that you can see, and, uh, and so that's why it was called the Sweet Pine Hills. But when it was translated into English, it was kind of mixed up, and they got known as the Sweet Grass Hills, and that's what they're called today. Um, but then in the distance, we can see off on the left, that's East Butte, uh, the bigger pointy one here, this is Gold Butte, and then just behind it is another little pointy one they call that Haystack Butte. And so those are the three, the three main buttes plus Haystack Butte. They've, on different maps, they were, had other names, the Trois Buttes, the Three Paps, and also the Sweetgrass Hills. Um, I guess I should just quickly mention, these hills are formed in kind of a unique way. They're, they're an igneous intrusion. So molten magma deep underground started to kind of bubble up to the surface, but never quite made it to the surface. So it was never an eruption of lava on the surface. It was magma that then cooled underground, and uh, consequently the, the sandstone that covered it before has eroded away, and the uh, igneous rock is exposed there. So it's a, a basalt-type rock. Um, also, um, the sweetgrass hills were a noon attack. So during the time of the ice ages, with the, with the ice sheets um, sliding across the plains, they never went over top of the sweetgrass hills. They were what's called a noon attack. Now the picture up top is just for illustrating what, what a noon attack looks like today. That picture isn't the sweetgrass hills from the ice age. because yeah. <laughs> um, So um, that's what, a noon, what it would have looked like uh, during the ice age where the sweetgrass hills were never concealed with the, with the ice sheets. But then things started to warm up. And um, those ice sheets started to melt, and um, all that glacial meltwater rushed through this area and carved out this valley pretty quickly. And um, it exposed this layer of sandstone that's about 40 foot thick. And so it, it was formed in the Cretaceous period, the, the sandstone, but the, the river uh, forced its way through and exposed the sandstone. And so there are many sandstone outcroppings that are exposed within the boundaries of the park and just beyond, but it creates a very unique landscape. Um, Here's another picture, just showing you that a little bit better the river. Um, the river today is called the Milk River, and it's named by Lewis and Clark. So they were the early American explorers that were trying to find a good way to get across the continent. They were traveling up the Missouri River in Montana, and they saw this other river that was um, a confluence there. And um, they saw that that water looked very silty, and um, they thought that the river water was the color of tea with the admixture of a tablespoonful of milk. So they named it the Milk River. That's what they wrote on their map, and the name has persisted. And, uh, but in the Blackfoot language, they had a similar name that translated means something like the Cloudy River or the Opaque River. Because it um, has a lot of suspended sediment in it uh, that makes it fairly cloudy.
Well, oh, here's, this is my first foray into doing a time-lapse panoramic uh, video. So just to show you a little bit of the hoodies in the valley. Let me see if I can get it to work there. And I just use an egg timer. I stuck my phone on an egg timer that, like, rotated. And uh, so, anyway, it, it kind of worked. Anyway, so, so here we can see a little bit more of the hoodoos. And that's something that people really associate with, the, with riding on stone and, and the special landscape there. Um, so the hoodoos, the beginning process, like I mentioned, was when the river carved through and, and started to, to form the rocks. But then freezing and thawing are, are a big factor in the way that the rocks have fractured to create more column shapes. And then today, uh, we get a lot of wind here in southern Alberta, and that continues to shape and erode the rocks and, and to um, cause these unusual formations. Could you run that through again, please? Yeah. So the, um, the river washed through and started the process. It exposed the sandstone and started to create some of the, some of the shapes. Now, when... We get a lot of days when it's above freezing in the day and below freezing at night. So say it snows and there's some snow on top, then it melts in the day and the, the water gets down into cracks. And then it freezes. And so it, it expands and it enlarges those cracks and it tends to go down vertically so that it creates these columns. And similar features like down in Utah and Bryce Canyon, they have hoodoos. And they actually, they're first, the native people of that area have similar stories about, about these um, types of uh, features. Um, sorry, did that kind of answer? No, no, I mean this video. Oh, you want to watch the video again? Oh, I'm sorry. I should have clarified. Let me let me just see if I can get it to go again. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for appreciating it. It was kind of a, kind of a fun attempt. So, um, the word for people in Blackfoot, or one of the words, is matapiks. So, matapiks means people. And that's what the hoodies are referred to as. Um, now, there, there's a story um, about this type of feature. And it's the story of the pots. Sorry, I'm not gonna, trying not to mess this up. Patsi misana. Now, I, I called my colleague Blanche yesterday. I'm like, okay, how do you pronounce this? And um, what is exactly the translation? And she said that that was a word that she wasn't familiar with, that, um, that she thought maybe it was more of a Sixica word or it might be an older word. Um, but because the story that goes along with this is one of the oldest stories. So, back to when people can hardly remember to, like the early, early days... Um, the, the Blackfoot people were, had a really good life. Things were going good. Uh, there was contentment amongst the people. And one night there was a great shooting star that was trailing uh, with a long tail. And um, the people were alarmed and, and uh, they went to ask the, talk to the elders like, well, what's that about? And um, they were very concerned and um, they felt that, that this was a negative uh, occurrence. And so they... Um, and not long later, off in the distance, the next day, they could see a figure approaching the camp. They sent a, sent a few young men out to, to escort him uh, to speak with the elders. And so this, this man showed up, and he's like, hey, I, I want to come live here. And they were very concerned, and they tried to discourage him, but he was very powerful. And um, so he, he made their home amongst the people, and he really started to have a negative effect, where he... Um, 
um, the, some of the young people were, were uh, di becoming disobedient and young parents were neglecting their kids and not teaching them properly. And um, so it created a lot of discord. And so they were trying to get to Patsy, sorry, Patsy Misina um, to leave them. But it, but it became quite a dispute. And so the people who were following the, this evil force, um, they were banished. And some of them, the story goes, that they went back to live in, in the forest. Um, and some went to live in the Badlands, uh, where they were turned to stone. So some take this as a reminder um, about being good parents, not neglecting your kids and to follow the, the counsel of the elders. Or you may end up... In, in that situation. So, um, so that's the one of the stories about uh, this type of formation, but, uh, but it is certainly unique, and, um, and uh, yeah, I like that story. But, um, but there are many landscape features, not just the hoodies that make this area unique. So there's another type of feature that is found there, um, these clay buttes, um, bentonite clay mounds. So you can see there's, you can see there's one there, there's one there, there's actually another one across the river over there. Um, some refer to these as spirit lodges. Now, this valley, because of its unique landscape features, was really associated with being a sacred place and a spiritual place. It's believed to be the home of many sacred beings. And some believe that those beings inhabit uh, these lodges in the daytime and that at night they will leave um, the lodges to, to wander the valley. And so some feel that it's inappropriate to be in this area after dark because it's the home of the spirits. And this is supported by the archaeological record, too. There isn't a lot of evidence that people camped in this valley, even though it seems like, you know, that'd be a great place to camp. Um, it's more evidence of day use or short-term use. Uh, teepee rings and things are located a little further distance away, and um, and the uh, uh, valley was not typically used for, for habitation in this section anyway. If you go further upstream or downstream, you do find some teepee rings and stuff in the valley. Um, so that's, a, that's another interesting feature. Um, another feature, and I didn't have a very great photo of Table Rock, which I, I had some from kind of a weird angle where you couldn't see that it was actually a two-legged hoodoo. Um, but here's another one, again, from my my friend Meg, um, taken from below. It's up on the edge of a cliff. But this is a known vision quest site. This unique feature was, was considered really a powerful place where people would seek out visions and, um, and still do. I, I guess I shouldn't be speaking in the, in the past. These are practices that still continue. Um, the, typically how it would work is uh, often a young man or it could be a woman or at any age of life, but usually a young person is there growing up and, and uh, kind of wanting to make their way in the world, would take the opportunity to uh, fast and pray in a special place, um, usually for up to four days. And during this time, they'd be asking the, the beings, sacred beings, it could be creator son or animal spirits or uh, ancestors, um, to send them some kind of help. And that might be given to them in the form of a dream or a vision or um, um, other knowledge might be imparted to them so that they might um, kind of make their way in the world and, and to help to guide them. And so this is one of the reasons why this place has always been considered so special is because that's a place where vision quests have, have taken place and still do. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, the landscape is truly wonderful. Um, and the, the valley is also an important location because of the special feature of the rock art. Um, 
Writing on Stone is home to one of the largest concentrations of rock art in the North American plains. Uh, there, are, there are hundreds of sites, thousands of individual motifs, and um, that's something, again, that makes this place so special. Um, the, I talked about how the sacred beings that dwell there, some believe that the pictures may have been made by those sacred beings, that that was a way that they could give messages to uh, communicate with people that were looking for guidance. But it's also understood that, that people have made pictures here too, that there are people in the past who have carved images. Sometimes it was uh, about personal experiences. Sometimes it is um, perhaps recording some uh, insights received in vision quests or other important events. So here we see a group of people with shields, and um, some of them don't have shields. Some have called this a battle scene, but I think it's more of a um, probably more ceremonial uh, thing going on. But the rock art has been, um, the practice of making rock art has been going on there for thousands of years. Some of the oldest rock art is over a couple thousand years old, maybe even much older. We're, we're still learning a lot about the rock art, which is kind of surprising. Uh, when I first started working there, I thought, okay, yeah, all the rock art has been documented and found, uh, but, but that's totally not the case. There, there's more things to be found, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but typically, one of the ways we can determine the age of the rock art is because of the subject matter, what's, what's in the picture. So here we see pictures of shields, and the use of shields kind of went out of practice with the arrival of horses and guns. So that was in the early 1700s. Uh, horses were being traded up from First Nations groups in the south. Uh, guns were being brought in kind of from more in the northeast. And they both simultaneously arrived here in, in this part of the world in the early 1700s. And that brought about a lot of changes, and some of which are reflected in the rock art. Because then we start to see lots of pictures of horses. And we don't see pictures of shields. Um, you, the shields were very large body shields that would have been unwieldy on horseback. And so they were abandoned, and also they weren't as effective at stopping bullets. Although I've heard some stories that uh, the shields could stop musket balls because they traveled at a much slower velocity and that they were very tough and uh, maybe could stop that, but once rifles are on the scene, that not so effective. Um, so here we've got a couple of horses and riders. Um, this is another, uh, this would be post-contact scene. Um, so the previous pictures were petroglyphs. They've been carved or chiseled, or scratched, or etched into the rock, but there's also paintings or um, pictographs made with pigment. So here, ochre, uh, which is a reddish mineral that's, that's uh, found in special places. Probably the, an actual ochre rock was used like a crayon. It wasn't made into liquid paint or a paste, uh, but there are paintings that do involve that kind of pigment. Um, so there's a, actually, I'll just use my puncture. This is kind of interesting because right here there's a gun and it has a flintlock. So that helps us to determine the age of the rock art because of that type of gun. And this person here has a cutlass or a sword with a handguard. And so um, this is an interesting picture of a battle, but that would have been within the last 300 years. But sometimes there's combinations of petroglyphs and pictographs. So uh, pictures are carved out and then pigment is added to accentuate certain areas after. Uh, on this one, you can see there is pigment added to the, the person's body. And there's actually another painted human down here below, and three horses, and a teepee. Now, it's kind of interesting. This teepee has three poles, which is typical of the Cree people, whereas the Blackfoot people, uh, their main poles of their teepee are four. And so it could be that this is recording a horse raid of the Cree people, 
that maybe somebody was able to capture three horses from the Crees and, and um, in, a, in a raid. So that's, that's kind of a, a, a subject matter that we definitely see on the rise with the arrival of horses as raiding activities. Well, I'm, I'm pretty interested in rock art. And uh, I just love this quote, which is from um, Plains Indian Rock Art by uh, Kaiser and Claussen. And um, why, why should we learn about rock art? Um, for, in the broader archaeological tradition, it says, I'll just read it. Uh, While bones tell us what people of the past ate, the arrow or spear points tell us how they hunted, pot sherds show us how they cooked, these artifacts relate almost nothing about how people worshipped, the way they perceived their environment, or their feelings about their place in the world. Rock art reveals all these things, for it is the one rare archaeological artifact whose form, structure, and location derives almost solely from the inner mind of its maker. The result is an almost limitless variety of images throughout the landscape that represents a nearly infinite variety of ideas, experiences, and perception. So through rock art, we can kind of get at other ideas that, that we can't get from other archaeological uh, records. And so that's something that, uh, that I appreciate about rock art. Uh, also, just to the picture there, is a remarkable painting of a thunderbird. It has uh, hailstones uh, on its body and lightning coming from its wings. And it's thought that he has a pipe as well. Um, so that is a remarkable picture that's located at the park. Um, now I wanted to talk about, I should, I'm just backing up here, this picture has been enhanced using um, computer software that makes faint ochre paint uh, much more much more visible. So there are things that we can hardly see with the human eyeball that the computers can detect. So you can see here using that de-stretch um, software here, this wash of mineral has kind of concealed that there is paint under there, but it is visible that you can see more of the lightning coming from the, from the wings of the Thunderbird. But there's always lots more to discover. So this is one of the main panels of rock art where um, when we take people on tours of the rock art, I look at this picture, th this every day. And just this summer, um, there was a, a visitor on the tour who was kind of a rock art enthusiast from California. And he said, hey, is that, a, is that a pecked figure up there? So right here, you can see the outline of a really prominent uh, animal. It's thought to be a beaver or a muskrat. And you can see its legs coming down here, and it's got some toes, and it's got its tail. Um, this picture, I've kind of cropped it and it cut off the head. But, um, but what I wanted to point out right here, you can see there's been some pecking in kind of an oval shape, right? Can you see where I'm talking? And there's two legs coming down right there. I didn't notice that for like the first seven years of working there. And I think the lighting this day was such that it just was like, how did I not see that before? Well, there's a, you know, traditional belief about this place was that the rock art could change over time. That, you know, you go one day and, and an image might stand out to you or maybe you're, you're getting some information. Uh, one day you come back the next day and it's not there. You can't find it again. I know for sure I've found rock art one day and can't find it again. Um, and so there's, there's more things, there's way more things to learn and discover. Um, kind of an exciting development, and again, I want to thank Meg for sharing these photos with me today. Um, so here, this is an unenhanced picture, and this is 
higher than this room, so probably about 20 to 30 feet up. There's just some, there's a cliff face right there. But when you enhance it, there are symbols uh, arranged in vertical rows. And this type of rock art called vertical series is found at other sites, and we're finding more and more, but this has just been within the last several years that, that this was even identified as being there because we weren't looking in the right way. And so there's rock art way higher than, than you would think would be humanly possible to, to get up there to make the pictures. But um, uh, so it's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Well, this is a really interesting picture, too. Now, there was a Mountie, a Northwest Mounted Policeman, who, he was actually stationed uh, in the detachment uh, that's located um, in the valley. And then he went on to become the Indian agent on the Kainai Reserve. His name is R.N. Wilson. Well, he came back a few years after he was stationed there, and he took some photographs of the rock art. And they were the earliest photographs of the rock art in 1897. He actually came back a couple of times. And when he took a photograph of this panel of rock art, this was here. In the, so this is a human figure. That's its person's neck. That's a shoulder. There's a shoulder. they got legs coming and feet. So that was there, and that's been there for a long time. But these vehicle pictures, those were not there in, in 1897, so they've been made after that time. And um, so for, it was quite a speculation about, well, where did these vehicle pictures come from? And for many years it was assumed that they were made by early settlers, or maybe some of the Mounties had carved these vehicle pictures. Well, there was a, um, a guy who worked there who went on to become a, really an expert in rock art and, and has written a lot about writing on stone. He was taking a real close look at these vehicles, and he started to think maybe these were made by a Blackfoot artist. But he didn't know who would have been there after 1897, because that was during the reserve period, and mobility was very limited to First Nations people, and being able to get to writing on stone was a challenge. And so um, he, he, he thought that the way the people inside the vehicles are drawn looks very much like, a, like known uh, Blackfoot pictures. So he thought, well, maybe they are Blackfoot artists. So he went to a conference about rock art, and he met a guy who had a photograph that really helped to um, answer the question about who made uh, these pictures, because this was the photo. And it's a photo of a person making the pictures. So this is uh, where I can put in a plug for archival research, uh, because uh, this man had been doing some research in the Smithsonian, and he had come across this photo of uh, this elder making... Uh, some pictographs, uh, but he wasn't sure the location, so he kind of followed it up and it led him back to the Montana Historical Society where the original photograph was. They caught, there was copies in the Smithsonian, and, um, and along with the photo, there was a story of, of this person. His name is Burgrattle, and that's a, that's a nicer portrait of him. You can kind of see him in profile in the other picture. But um, So Burgrattle, he was actually born in the vicinity of Writing on Stone around 1860, so when he was a young man, or young boy, uh, he, he knew that place really well. He, he spent a lot of time there as a youngster, and he really loved that place. But as time went on, he ended up living on the uh, reserve down in Brownie, the Onskapi Pigani, so the southern Pagan. And that's uh, where he lived the rest of his life. And so many years transpired, and he never had the opportunity to go back to writing on stone until many years later. So now we're going to fast forward in time to the 1920s. Um, Burgrattle becomes acquainted with a guy named Roland Wilcom. So Wilcom, he was a civil engineer. He was working around the reserve in, in uh, 
northern Montana, uh, making roads. And he was just real curious about the Blackfoot people. He started to make friends there, and he wanted to learn more about the traditional ways. And so some of his friends said, oh, you should go talk to Bird Rattle, because he knows all about the old ways. So um, they got to know each other. And um, Bird Rattle shared stories about his youth. And when he was a boy, he used to go to this amazing place, Aethanapi, the place where the drawings are. And, uh, but he hadn't had a chance to go back for a long time. So uh, Wilkham and a few other friends, they, they got together and they made a trip to Writing on Stone, at, or Aethanapi. And that was uh, in September of 1924. Now, Wilkham, he took this photo of uh, Bird Rattle making the picture. Uh, but he also wrote down kind of an account of what happened on their trip. So those things ended up in the Montana Historical Society archives. And uh, so in, in his recounting, he says that they, they, they got to the valley, and it was almost dark. And uh, so they quickly set up their camp, and they stayed up late sharing stories. And uh, he says that when he woke up the next morning, he heard someone singing, and it was Bird Rattle. So Bird Rattle had gotten up early, He'd had a bath in the river, and then he put on his special ceremonial clothes. So the clothes he's wearing here, that's, that's not like his day-to-day -day wear. He's dressed up for ceremony, and um, he held ceremonies with one of his friends who came with him. And I, this is just kind of an aside. I was just reading the thing about uh, his friend and, and a few other people ended up going to uh, Hollywood, and they were in a movie with Shirley Temple. It was filmed, uh, anyways, it was set in Glacier Park. But anyways, Bird Rattle himself was not in the movie, but a couple of his friends were, so. Anyway, back to Bird Rattle. So he, um, he, um, he was singing some songs that were part of a ceremony, and that's what uh, Wilcom heard when he woke up. So they spent the day looking at the rock art there and talking about it, and, and Bird Rattle really felt impressed that he should make a record of his visit. And so he carved the vehicles that they traveled there in, um, to commemorate the special occasion. And so this is probably the, the most recent um, Blackfoot picture um, that was made in 1924. Now, there have been other Blackfoot people who have signed their names um, since then, but as far as uh, pictographs or petroglyphs, um, this is the most recent one that I'm aware of. Um, but other people started showing up too, not uh, making carvings too. This is the first European uh, carving that is, has been identified, and it was made by Parley Stark in 1886, in October, it says. Now, when the Mounties, so when they were recruited Mounties, Mounties were sent out west in 74, they actually went right through the Milk River Valley, and they went right by where the rock art was. And there was a young boy, um, Bagley, uh, Fred Bagley, who was a bugler, and he kept a diary of his trip, of the trip, and he says that they that they saw the the Indian carvings, and he said that we added ours too. But as far as I know, none have been identified as being from that original Mountie um, march through uh, the valley in '74. Um, but this is the first uh, European name that has been identified that I'm aware of. So that was in 1886, and Parley Stark was a contractor with the Mounties, and it's thought that he might have been sent out there to try and find, scout out a good location for a police detachment. And so um, a couple other follow-up uh, people, William Poplington, it says, I, agent, Indian agent, and um, E. Bradley was the inspector with the, down here it says Northwest Mountain Police, 1887. They, they also followed up, and they um, determined that they wanted to build a Mountie post. 
And so one of the reasons why they chose this location was its proximity to the Sweetgrass Hills. A um, gold mining camp had sprung up in Goldview. Somebody found gold there, and it was attracting a lot of attention. Prospectors were moving in to try and get rich, and there was concern that there might be some rowdiness spilling across the border from the mining camp. And so they thought, we better put some police here to keep an eye on things, you know, watching out for smugglers and things like that. So they chose this location um, to build their post. So this is a replica of what the post looked like. Um, the original burned down, uh, well, was burned down by an arsonist in just not long after the Mounties moved out in 1917. So the Mounties were stationed there for about 30 years, and they were an important part of kind of the early uh, settler community. So here, now we're back up on, on the high hill where we can look down into the valley, and here you can see that Mountie post. And it's on the original location, so that's where the original post was built. So this is their house, there is a stable. They had a few other outbuildings that were originally there too. Um, so when it's built right on this coulee, and the coulee kind of curves around and goes right kind of towards the Sweetgrass Hills. So this was a, a travel way where they were monitoring people coming and going. Now, the point where this photo was taken from uh, was known by some of the early settlers as Torpy's Butte or Torpy's Bluff because one of the Mounties named Torpy uh, would ride up to the top of this hill and um, scope out, you know, use a looking glass and he'd see if there's any activity. They were supposed to ride out on patrols and go to their neighboring... Um, so, I guess I didn't really explain. This, um, this police post was part of a string of border patrol posts. So every 30, 40 miles, there was a, a detachment similar to this all along the U.S.-Canada border from the Rocky Mountains to um, Manitoba. And so their, their job is just to assert that there is a border here, there, there is an international boundary. They would assess duties and taxes, and sometimes, uh, just like today, people would undervalue what they were importing, and so they would have to, ah, I think you paid more for those horses. And, yeah. Anyway, so they had to assess duties and things like that. So that was one of the jobs of the, of the early Mounties. Um, I, I just wanted to mention, too, oops, wrong, wrong thing. Um, Jack Brink, who was a, uh, is an archaeologist, who conducted some of the earliest excavations here in the 70s, when they were um, looking at some of the rock art panels, they would excavate near them just to see if any um, material culture was left behind. And, and they did find some, but like I said, there wasn't much uh, long-term camping or anything like that in the valley. But he said that in front of one of the panels of rock art, they found these little uh, round thing here and a round thing here and a round thing here in front of the rock art. And an early settler had taken the initiative to fence off the rock art so that cattle wouldn't rub up against it. So they were doing their part to try and be conservators and um, to, to look out for the, for the cultural treasures that they recognized there, too. Um, and so there, there are families that have lived here, you know, for over 100 years and that still live there today. Well, flora and fauna. We could talk all day just about that, um, and I, I won't get into it too much, but I just wanted to say that there is a very unique coming together of a lot of different ecosystems there that creates a, a really interesting diversity uh, in the plant and animal life at Writing on Stone, too, but that's for, an, that's for another talk. Um, 
But um, I guess my hope is that I've been able to convey a little bit of the significance of Asinapi. Um, this is a place that's been special uh, to the Nitsutipi for thousands of years. And uh, it's really easy to understand why. Just in, when you're in that location, um, looking around, it, it is a truly remarkable place. Um, but I, I have also heard from uh, some elders that there was another name for this place, which is Asinapiopi. And translated, that means the place where you can see the path ahead, where maybe you can come there to catch a glimpse of your future, to find kind of your, your mission or your purpose. And um, I, I think that there are still people who, who go to this place for that reason. And it is truly... Sorry, I don't know why I'm getting worked up. But it is a very special place. Um, and I hope it continues to be for, for many years to come. And um, so I hope I've been able to uh, share a little bit of some of the important significance of this place and, and uh, appreciate you coming. Now, I also wanted to mention a special person sitting at the back, my former boss, Aaron, who is the site manager of Writing on Stone. And um, is that your official title now? I thought it kind of changed. Not official. Oh, okay. <laughs> what is your official title, Aaron? Um, and Erin was, was, has been heavily involved with the UNESCO nomination and that whole process. It was a very lengthy process, and, um, and he's put a ton of work into achieving that designation, and, and so I'm really glad to, that it has achieved this international recognition. Um, now, in these trying political times, um, i got to say, when we... Uh, we were live streaming the, the UNESCO Congress in Azerbaijan, and we said we had to get up really early because of the time difference, and so you know, we were getting up at the crack of dawn, and we were live streaming this at the visitor center. And um, it was so heartwarming, first of all, to see the, um, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, like the civil society, the way people from all over the world on, on this uh, or within this organization, the way they communicated with each other with such respect, and um, which which is sometimes lacking in some of the other political realms, um, but just to see civil society at work, but also to see people from all around the world assert and uh, you know say yes, we support uh, the designation of this place as UNESCO World Heritage Site because it is truly <coughs> remarkable, and then to hear uh, Representative. Martin Heavyhead there, speaking Blackfoot to the group, um, and to share his feelings about the place really was a was a powerful experience. So thank you so much for coming, and, and I wondered if any of you have any questions. I'm really happy to do my best to answer. I guess I'm not an official representative of the park, but we got Aaron here for that too. Yeah. Yeah, excellent question. 
Now, in some situations, it's very likely that since they have been made, there has been erosion. That there used to be some features that maybe you could climb up on. Um, I was talking with a researcher that's um, out of Wyoming, a rock art researcher, a while ago, and they were convinced that rappelling was part of it. Um, but there is also, you know, there are stories that um, um, that the sacred beings gave power to the bluebirds to make rock art. Or, you know, if it was a sacred being, then, you know, that wouldn't be an obstacle for them. Uh, but, it, but it is likely that, um, that the landscape has changed. But it's not to say that, I mean, a Blackfoot person would be perfectly capable of building a ladder, too. Um, you know, things like that. So um, those are some of the ideas. Yeah, good question. Thanks. Um, many others? Yeah? Uh, with the carving pattern, the pictographs, how would they have... Oh, good question. Yeah, sorry, I, I failed to mention when oh, I mentioned how the excavations. Sometimes when they excavated near some of the rock art, they found pieces of bone and antler, um, and they're all worn down on the end. So you know, there's a lot of evidence of abrasion. So it's likely that pieces of bone and antler, so a nice pointy antler, uh, would be used for the scribing and, and um, carving into the rock. So that's those are likely the tools that were used. Yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Kind of behind the detachment, most of the rock art is on south-facing cliffs. So the cliffs on the opposite side that are north-facing, you don't find so much rock art. Most of it is south-facing. Um, some have different explanations as for why that is. Um, but but there is rock art kind of up that police coulee. Yeah, uh, like up this coulee, there is rock art back in there. It's kind of scattered around. It's most concentrated um, just over within what is called the archaeological preserve within the park. That's the most dense concentration, but there is scattered around. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll be hanging around here for a bit if you want to come and talk to me afterward. I guess I should mention Alan and Shirley are here too. They were longtime campground hosts uh, at the park, and so it's really great to catch up with them here today and thank you for coming out too and lots of I mean there's many people so anyways thank you so much for coming I'd like to say a big thank you to Becky for such a fascinating presentation today. I really enjoyed all the stories and knowledge you were able to share, as well as the beautiful photographs. Um, I know I'm going to be looking at writing on stone a little bit differently uh, next time I go. It's such an amazing place. Um, thank you all for coming today. I just wanted to mention our next program um, is next Wednesday, and we're going to be doing Lethbridge History Trivia. That will be led by myself. So please come to... Uh, test your trivia knowledge and to learn something new. We'll make it fun and interactive. Um, so that's next week at 2. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Let's give Becky one more round of applause. Oh, thanks. Um, I was just going to say, I, I have some other pictures that didn't make the cut, so I just, there's, I just, there's just so many. You just can't stop taking photos of those hills. Um, so anyway, these are some, uh, some other photos that... Anyway, so, <laughs> thanks.